0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit RedemptionCalgarySouth.com. Well, good morning once again. As Josh mentioned, my name is Michael. I'm the pastor of discipleship at Redemption Calgary Church North, and it's really great to be with you here this morning. I, I guess, actually, as one of the pastor elders in the North Church, I'm functionally one of the elders here of Redemption South as well, while um seek out elders to be here for this church. So greetings from the elder team. It really is a joy to be here. Glad that Quentin could be up there and I could be down here. Um, well, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Now, if you don't have a Bible, ushers will be happy to provide you with one that you can use today or keep if you need, but we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 where we'll find a well-known Bible story. The story dramatically captures the Savior's mission to rescue hopeless sinners. It's the story of a wee little man who gets caught, called down out of a sycamore tree and saved. It's also the story about God and what's important to Him in many ways, it's your story and it's my story because Jesus sought us when we were lost. But first, let's warm up with a question. Have you ever lost anything? Well, of course you have. We all lose things. For guys, one of the worst things to lose is your wallet, right? It's all, all that, just everything in there you need and, and the hassle of replacing everything if you did lose it. In my case, my wallet and my phone are one and the same, so that would be a, a pretty big loss uh, a while ago, before I got my ring resized, my wedding ring was a bit too big, so whenever my hands got a little cold, it would just slip right off. So I lost my ring probably half a dozen times, found it each time, thankfully. We all lose things. When I was, when I was uh, born, my paternal grandmother gave me a teddy bear. Uh, now, it's quite raggedy now. It's almost 40 years old, well-loved, and I took, when I was a boy, I took that teddy bear everywhere. I mean literally everywhere. And it was so precious to me that if we, one time, for example, we left it at a grocery store, we had to go back and get it. We're on a road trip, we left it at a um, rest area. We were miles down the road, we had to go back and get it. Um, It went everywhere with me. And so when it was lost, it was a really big deal. It was something I sought. It was something I wanted near to me as a boy. It was valuable to me, not because of its condition, for there certainly were nicer stuffed animals. If you could see it here, there's really nothing left. It's just threads, basically. It was valuable to me, not because it was costly. Certainly, no one would pay anything for my raggedy old bear. And not because it was it's precious to me because it's rare, you could say. It's it's one of a kind. It's valuable because it it was given to me by someone who loved me and because I had well loved it. It was irreplaceable in that sense. Well, the main point of our story that we'll read today is that Jesus seeks and saves that which is lost. Jesus was and still is on mission to rescue lost sinners from death and hell. They are His people. He chose them before the foundation of the world. He purchased them with His own blood. They are precious to Him, not because of their condition, for we're all sinful and rebellious apart from grace. They're precious to Him, not because of their contribution, because our works add nothing to Him, and not because of our status, for He's all-glorious. Jesus treasures His people because they are a gift to Him from the Father, and they are the object of His love. In our story, Jesus actually elevates and honors and saves one of the lowliest scoundrels. He sought that which was lost, even though doing so would mean that the crowd would hate him. Before we get into the story, though, just a couple things we need to keep in mind. First, the first century biblical culture was steeped in a shame-honor dynamic. At all costs, honor was to be pursued and protected, and dishonor or shame was to be avoided and despised. This dynamic colors really all of the New Testament, but especially the Gospels. It intensifies and amazes our story this morning. So as, as you listen, remember this shame-honor culture. Jesus, we will see, was willing to experience shame in order to save someone who himself risked shame in order to see Christ. Second, when it it came to culturally religious status, well, the Pharisees had it all. They were the honored ones, and the tax collectors were the shamed ones. This is continually reiterated throughout the Gospel of Luke, especially. It's in all the Gospels, but Luke makes a point to elevate the lowly and the weak and the needy and to... um, really show the, uh, the upside-down kingdom of the, the Pharisees who would have been, should have been honored, as, well, at least that's what they thought, but really were living shamefully. Third thing to keep in mind is the context. Now, Luke was a detailed grammarian. He was a, a careful historian and a skillful theologian. He wrote his gospel in a very intentional way. At the end of chapter 9, begins a 10-chapter, non-chronological section. So you might want to keep that in mind. When you're reading Luke 9 to 19, that section is not chronological. It was actually, all those stories are placed in a strategic way to bring out theological themes. And actually, that, that section begins with verse 951, which says, When the days were approaching for His ascension, He, that is Jesus, was determined to go to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem. Well, to celebrate the Passover, but more specifically, to become the Passover lamb. Early on in Luke, Jesus is focused on the goal of getting to the cross. And Jesus, or excuse me, Luke highlights that beginning in, in 9.51. And then this 10-chapter ch- segment, right in the middle of it is a very familiar parable probably to you, is the prodigal son. It's a story about someone being lost and saved and then rejoicing. Well, that's kind of the main point of that whole section. That section ends in with the end verse in our passage, 19 verse 10, which states the theme of the whole book of Luke, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So Luke has very carefully organized here a section of Scripture to highlight the Savior's mission, and we, we come into it right at the tail end here at, at the, chapter 19 verses 1 to 10. That's the Savior's mission, to rescue hopeless sinners, which is, again, dramatically captured in the story of a wee little man called out of a sycamore tree. It's a story about faith and repentance. It's our story. As you listen, notice, notice the tender compassion of the Savior. Notice His tenacious pursuit. We'll consider four parts of the drama and connect each part to our life. But before we do, let me pray for us once again. Father, as we think about this familiar story, at least familiar to many of us, uh, we pray that the details of it would come alive, that that we, as it were, would be transported into first century uh, Jerusalem, Jericho, first century biblical times, and and really be able to to feel the drama and place ourselves in the story. We pray that it would be your spirit that would use your word to, to work it into our hearts, and I pray that we would respond in a way that honors Christ. We would respond in such a way that would conform us to your Son, Christ. Lord, we were all lost. Perhaps some of us here are still lost. We're so thankful you pursue lost sinners. and You pursue them with the message of the gospel, the message of hope. Would that be an encouragement to us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, we're looking at the story of Zacchaeus from Luke 19. And as our story begins, we need to set the scene. We need to set the scene. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 3. Follow along as I read 1 through 3 of chapter 19. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Well, here's another question for you. ask if you've ever lost anything. Have you ever missed the beginning of a movie? So that you, are, you saw the you, you just jumped in. Maybe they were already watching the movie. You came in late. You missed the beginning, and the whole time you're just wondering, what's going on? If only I had seen the opening scene, I would know what's happening. But I've missed crucial details. Well, if we weren't careful, we could skip over these first verses and feel like, oh, they're not that significant. In Jericho, tax collector, Jesus is there. But actually, these verses set the scene and they color the whole rest of the passage. So we need to to slow down and, and see what's going on here. After all, the gospel always meets us in a context. The truth is never in a vacuum. We all have an upbringing, life experiences, cultural background that sets the scene for our Our conversion that sets the scene for Christ to meet us in our context. Well, these were the context, these verses set the context for Zacchaeus. This was the scene in which the gospel would come to him. It's an incredible, life-altering story for Zacchaeus. And unless we dig into the details, you know you might miss that the scene is actually, there's a lot of irony. Actually, it's verging on ridiculous. The scene is incredible. Um, if, if we were in the first century, this would, this would, this would be jaw-dropping. We would, we would be absolutely amazed. Why is Jesus in Jericho? And why did he just pass through without stopping? Why is a, cha- as a chief tax collector seeking Jesus? And then there's the comical note that Zacchaeus was too small to see over the crowd. What's going on with that? Why include that detail? Let's figure out what's going on here. It's the Thursday before Passover, only days before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the Son of God is in Jericho. Why Jericho? Well, he was traveling south from Galilee, from Galilee, taking the, the shortest route, which brought him through Samaria, but the Samaritans didn't receive him, so they, they were detoured, rerouted into a, towards Jericho, lucky for Zacchaeus. Jericho was 27 kilometers northeast of Jerusalem, about 8 kilometers west of the Jordan River, it's about 1,000 feet below sea level and 3,500 feet below Jerusalem. So when you get to Jericho, you know you got a trek. You're going to go up 3,500 feet to get to your destination, Jerusalem. Because of that, Herod at the time designed Jericho to be kind of like a, a um, hospitality place, a kind of like a, a place that would um, really com- be a comfort for travelers. Um, let me put it this way. You could think of it like a kind of a modern, uh, an ancient Las Vegas, right? There were things you could do for everyone. They wanted you to be comfortable. They wanted you to stay a while. They wanted you to spend your money there. That is Jericho. Tr- weary travelers could find refuge and anything else they wanted. So imagine a large crowd is with Jesus. They're eager to see miracles. They want to hear his, they're fascinated by his teaching. And they're accompanying him Accompanying him, following him to the feast in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do when he gets to Jericho? He passes right through. He entered the city and kept on going. This is Jesus' only known tour of Jericho. And he doesn't even stop. He doesn't even take time to heal somebody. Or maybe an hour just to, to re- rehash the Sermon on the Mount or some other important teaching the entire community would have expected him to stay for a visit. Most likely, they had, they had known he was coming for quite some time. Jesus is on his way. Some messenger came ahead. Jesus is coming. Perhaps they've even organized a formal banquet in his honor, welcoming him, wanting him to stay the night. That would have been customary. After all, Jericho is for weary travelers. They're accustomed to honoring guests. No doubt, The entire city is deeply disappointed that Jesus passes right through. Then, completely unexpected, we read, And behold, a man named Zacchaeus. Jesus is passing through, and behold. Those words, and behold, strike the reader. They say, listen up, something important is coming. Slow down, pay attention. Zacchaeus enters the scene. Things could not have gotten any worse from Jericho's perspective. Not only has Jesus rejected their hospitality or at least denied it and said he's going to continue going forward, but the town villain has entered in stage left. The Jericho crowd would have been, what is going on? Now, ironically, Zacchaeus means the righteous one, pure and innocent, which is exactly the opposite of his character as a tax collector. As you may know, tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for Rome. The system was full of abuses. They were men who were hated and despised, not only because they were unpatriotic, dishonest, and greedy, but also because their job made them perpetually, ritually unclean. They associated with Gentile Romans with, and helped them gather the taxes that were burdensome to everyone. So pious Jews considered tax collectors alienated from God. They were traitors who'd committed spiritual high treason. But Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. He's the leader of tax collectors in the area. Thus, Zacchaeus symbolized the authority of a government that was taking people's money and oppressing them. He embodied that in Jericho. But Zacchaeus was not just working for the Roman IRS or the, or the Roman CRA. He was working for himself. He was a rich man, meaning he overtaxed in order to gain money for himself. Like I said, Jericho was a popular city. It was, it was a central trading route, a major city of toll collecting. Many travelers, a big tax office, which made it a wealthy and well-taxed city. Very lucrative For Zacchaeus. Extremely profitable for him. It fueled his sin and his greed. As a chief tax collector, he decided that riches were more important to him than social acceptance, than friends, than his religion, even than a clear conscience. He loved money more than he loved people, which caused him to betray his nation, betray his religion. And betray his upbringing. He veered away from the greatest commandments. But something's going on here. Zacchaeus was rich, but he was apparently not happy. He was seeking something more. Ultimately, riches did not satisfy. So we read in verse 3 that Zacchaeus was seeking to see Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. Now he wanted to see him for himself. And this is more than just curiosity. Zacchaeus doesn't just want to see the miracle worker. He doesn't want to just hear a great teaching. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus the Savior, the one who can satisfy the deepest longings in his otherwise discontent heart. But there was a problem. Zacchaeus is a wee little man. The crowd was too thick and prohibitive for him to see him, to see Jesus, because he is small in stature. Now, the, this may not be apparent at first, but the problem is not really that Zacchaeus that, that is short. Now, that, that creates sort of a problem, but he's a rich man, a man of influence, and if he was an honorable man, then, then the sea would depart. For a wealthy, honorable man, they would let him up front, they would honor him, and he could walk right through. But Zacchaeus doesn't dare enter the crowd because the crowd hates him. Because you can get lost in the crowd. A wee little man could easily have his, even his life taken. It was not unheard of for a man just to be killed in a crowd and left to dead, and no one thought anything of it because no one liked him anyway. So Zacchaeus is He's full of shame. He's afraid. He had to watch his back. Shame is really what prevented Zacchaeus from pressing into the crowd to seek Jesus. After all, he had stolen money from virtually everyone present. Not to worry, though, Zacchaeus has a plan. We see it in verses 4 and 6. He has a plan to seek the Savior. Follow along as I read verses 4 to 6. So he, that is Zacchaeus, ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Unable to see Zacchaeus, unable to see Jesus, Zacchaeus ran down the road, climbs up a tree for a better view. I don't know about you, but when I was a, a boy, I loved to climb trees. Uh, I climbed a lot of trees, and actually one time, my brother and I were just, I lived in western Washington, that's where I grew up, and in western Washington, a lot of trees, a lot of forests, we, we saw them doing some excavating, big, big equipment, so we climbed up a tree so we could get a better view, right? Climb up high, we can see what they're doing, uh, in that particular instance, I actually cut open like right below my arm here, I had to go to the hospital, but that's another story. In this case, the point is I climbed a tree so I could see better. That's what Zacchaeus is doing. Runs down the road, climbed a tree so he can see better. But unlike a boy climbing a tree, Zacchaeus's climbing is not innocent. It's not playful, let's go uh, play in the treehouse kind of climbing. In the Middle East, in that culture, it was not acceptable. For noble, wealthy men to climb trees, or to run, for that matter. So twice now, Zacchaeus has now he's run, which would have been shameful, it would have been despicable, would have looked down upon, and he's climbed up a tree, which also would have been shameful. You wouldn't have raised your garment, you wouldn't have just done that, and everyone would have known that a man of honor, a noble man, does not act that way. It's disgraceful. So here we have one of the wealthiest, well-known persons in the city risking his dignity if he has any, to, in order to see Jesus, although he did take precautions. The sycamore tree is, would have been outside of the city. Jewish, for whatever reason, the sycamore tree uh, was not uh, a noble tree in Jewish tradition, so it had to be, the law said it had to be planted at least 75 feet outside of the city. And they got all sorts of strange laws. 75 feet outside of the city for the sycamore tree. And this is not like a North American sycamore tree. It's more like a squatty oak tree. The, the trees are very low, the branches are very low to the ground, and they, they go out very far. And the, the leaves are very dense foliage, big leaves. So Zacchaeus strategically runs out to this sycamore tree, easy to climb and easy to hide. Big trees, big foliage. No one's going to see him. Perhaps he can just get a glimpse of Jesus, which is what he wants to do. Um, So here again, just to point out the obvious, we have one of the wealthiest, most well-known, most powerful men in the city, disgracefully climbing a tree and hiding in a tree to see Jesus. I don't know what you could compare that to Um, if you had some kind of royalties, like, well, I mean, Zacchaeus wouldn't be royalty, but somebody really important, um, wanting to, they're hiding behind a door so they can look through the crack and and see the, the guest of honor. It's just shameful. It's just disgraceful. Uh, but this is Zacchaeus. This was his plan. And really, he's, he's less concerned about the rabbinic rules anyway. He's less concerned about the cultural norms. He just wants to see Jesus. He just wants an opportunity to see the one he's heard so much about. His pride and greedy pursuit of wealth was melting into a zeal for Christ. Really, at this point, he's got nothing to lose. He was despised and rejected by his own people anyway. He had money, but no friends, no reputation, and no joy. Perhaps he's heard that Jesus receives even tax collectors. Jesus receives even sinners. There was even a tax collector among Jesus' close associates. Maybe there's some glimmer of hope for Zacchaeus. His shame drove him to unashamedly pursue Jesus Christ which I think is a point we should just highlight personally. Do do we cater to the cultural norms? Are we willing to risk shame for the sake of Christ? Zacchaeus was willing. He was willing to do uh, the otherwise disgraceful things in order that he could see Christ. I wonder if, if we would risk ridicule to speak about Jesus in the workplace. If we would risk uh, being looked down upon to invite our neighbors over for dinner? Or do we hide in the proverbial sycamore tree, as it were? Would it be awkward for you to refuse watching a movie with the gang because, you know, I don't think that movie honors Christ? Would it... Do you avoid spiritual conversations even with believers? You don't want to press in too deep and feel, seem overly spiritual. I understand we need to be wise and we obviously talk about other things besides the Bible, but I fear our problem is really a lack of passion for Christ, a passion that we see in seed form in Zacchaeus. Whatever the cost, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Are you desperate to see Jesus? Are you, are you desperate? Are you longing to experience the joy that he provides As It looked like Zacchaeus wanted The bottom line is, are you shaped more by our culture or by your love for Jesus? Zacchaeus had every worldly desire, but he wanted Christ. You and I, in in many respects, have much worldly wealth. Do we want Christ more? We can easily confuse worldly contentment with spiritual satisfaction. What I mean by that is, we can Maybe even unknowingly or unintentionally associate worldly blessings with spiritual joy. You know, you get a new job, um, life seems to be going well, you've got that coveted gift you've wanted for so long, you've experienced success, or days are seen to be going well, and we confuse um, everyday blessings with satisfaction in Christ. Now, sometimes they can go together, but it's not the same thing, is it? Right? An unbeliever can, can experience the joy of a, of a good day or a promotion at work. It's not the same. So in a planned, in our circumstances where we have so much, we have to be so intentional in our communion with Christ. We have to be so intentional to make sure that my joy is rooted not in the things around me, not in my present circumstances, but in my Lord. So are you increasingly enjoying Him through His Word? Are you growing in consistency in prayer? These things will mark the one who is seeking their Savior. After all, Jesus was humiliated, despised, rejected, and crucified to purchase you out of death. He calls you to live a life that is unashamed of the gospel and of Him and to pursue Him. How do you cultivate this kind of life? Well, I think what we draw from the story is you got to know your shame. Maybe that sounds strange, but you got to know your shame. Zacchaeus knew his shame. He knew he was disgraceful and it had mounted up in his heart and he couldn't take it anymore. So when the opportunity arose, he dropped everything to see Christ. He knew he needed him. The Bible is written for those who know their shame. And listen, God has a unique affection for those who are familiar with shame. Beginning in Genesis 3 and running all the way through the Bible, we see time and time again that God speaks tenderly to those who need grace. He speaks with compassion to those who know that they're naked and ashamed apart from His grace. If sin exposes us, it reveals that we're unclean, that we're outcasts. But if we'll admit our need... Then God, He clothes the naked. He cleanses the untouchable, and He calls the outcast His people. We don't live in shame; that's not our identity, but we do daily acknowledge our need for His grace. That's what's going on in Zacchaeus' life. He's beginning to see that all the money, or all the success, or all the whatever tax collecting life brought to him, it, it, it wasn't good for his soul. In this story, Jesus, took, Jesus actually took Zacchaeus' shame upon himself. He took his shame upon himself to rescue Zacchaeus. Back in the sycamore tree, Zacchaeus is hiding, hoping to remain unseen, but he was spotted. What happened next is both unthinkable and unprecedented. Jesus would have been expected to call Zacchaeus out, sure, but then to rebuke him, require him to, pu- to go purify himself in the temple in Jerusalem, to start observing the law. The crowd would have been wanting Jesus to call him out as an unfit Jew, as someone who had oppressed them. He's... Instead, Jesus invites himself to his house He invites himself to the house of the chief tax collector. I think we understand this even in our culture. No one one really publicly invites themselves to someone's house, especially not the house of an unclean sinner, and especially not to have a meal. Having a meal together was a sign of acceptance. It was a sign of of including in, in intimate fellowship. Jesus, however, pursued the worst because... The worst know their need for a savior. So Jesus makes this divine invitation to eat a meal with one of the most notorious outcasts of the region. He, he knew the hostility of the crowd. So at the climax of the story, he shifts hostility onto himself. Think about it. The, they're walking by the, the sycamore trees there. If the crowd sees Zacchaeus, well, they're going to disdain. They're going to hate. They're going to mock him. But instead, Jesus says, he he, he preempts that. He says, Zacchaeus, why don't you come down so I can eat with you? So now, instead of mocking Zacchaeus, they're going to mock Jesus. He takes that on himself so they don't mock him. He deflected hatred aimed at Zacchaeus and brought it on to himself. Jesus was fully committed to seeking and saving the lost, whatever the cost. In fact, obviously, he would soon give his life. Men like Zacchaeus. But notice a couple other details in verses 5 and 6. One, Jesus looked up. He took notice of Zacchaeus. He was intentional. He initiated. Who would take notice of the tax collector? If you were walking by, you you might see him there and and again mock him or or insult him or just try not to make eye contact with him. Better to ignore the, the weird tax collector guy in the tree. But Jesus slows down, looks up, and notices him. The fact that Jesus was on this route, the route that Zacchaeus hid in a sycamore tree, the fact that he stopped and looked up and called him by name and gave him instructions indicates that Jesus had a plan. This was God's sovereign grace in Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus thought he was seeking Jesus, but in fact, Jesus was seeking him. Also notice, as I mentioned, Jesus called him by name. Of course he called him by name. He's known him him since before the foundation of the world. And in a few short days, he would die on the cross for this very person. He knew everything about Zacchaeus, his occupation, his stealing, his motivations, he knew that he, money was Zacchaeus's God. He knew that Zacchaeus had experienced loneliness and shame and disgrace and dishonor and fear. He knew everything about Zacchaeus. And Jesus also knew that this encounter with him would change everything. It would restore his soul to fellowship with the all-satisfying God of grace, and it would rescue this wee little man from himself, his sin, and from destruction. By the way, God knows your name, and He knows my name. He knows everything about you. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your struggles, your sins, your fears, your insecurities, and your secrets. He knows your thoughts, your desires, your passions, your painful memories. He knows when you're hiding, and He knows when you're hurting. And He knows how to call you out of the tree of despair or the tree of loneliness and anger, so that you can meet with him in the midst of your shame and so that he can change everything. He seeks you and he calls you by name. Well, Zacchaeus didn't wait long to respond. We tell our kids to obey all the way right away with a happy heart. That was Zacchaeus. All the way right away with a happy heart. Never had Zacchaeus climbed down a tree so fast. And never with so much joy. He may have had mixed emotions. Can you imagine? He's coming down. The crowd is right there. Jesus has just called him out. He didn't expect this. He just wanted to get a glimpse. But now he's going he's gonna to get ready to prepare a meal for Jesus. It's incredible. There were many sins on his conscience. There were many things weighing him down. And he's about to host the forgiver of sins. Well, a crowd didn't wait long to respond either. They grumbled while Zacchaeus surrendered. And we see Zacchaeus' surrender in verses 7 to 8, his surrender to Jesus. Let's look at those verses together. And when they saw it, that is the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, as I said, everyone is shocked. I mean, they're they're just utter dismay. No doubt everyone gazed up into the tree. Jesus says, Zacchaeus. Everyone looks up. Zacchaeus, what is he doing here? They're shocked. They're they're just disgusted. Uh, they, They can't imagine what's happening here. They knew who Zacchaeus was, and they were outraged that Jesus was going to his house. The man who stole from them, the infamous scoundrel, was hosting the most prestigious, the most honorable guest this town has ever seen. I mean, imagine that yourself. Imagine someone rejected you. They rejected your religion, your tradition, your family, your culture, your values, everything about you, they rejected it why did they reject it? So that they could work for an oppressive government as a drug and arms dealer. And not only that, they frequently visited you and stole from you, took money from you. You're not going to think real highly of this person. Year after year, month after month, they come, they take money, and you, there's nothing you can do about it. That's what's happening here. That's Zacchaeus. And now he's going to host the Son of God. Well, the crowd labeled Zacchaeus a sinner. We're all sinners, but some are known for their sins. Certainly Zacchaeus was. This was his identity. It wasn't just a man who sinned. He was a sinner. He was openly sinful, perpetually unclean. And if Jesus eats at Zacchaeus' house, then he too would be unclean. But Jesus would actually rescue the greedy tax collector rather than be defiled by him. Because you see, when Jesus meets with sinners... He makes them clean. They don't make him unclean. At this point, everyone in the crowd wonders what will happen next. We've heard about this Jesus, but could he really be the long-awaited Messiah? After all, he's going to eat with tax collectors. Is he really the one that's supposed to rescue us from the the oppressing Roman government? It seems like he's making friends with them. And how will Zacchaeus respond? What will he do? What will Jesus do? Well, it seems likely in verse when it says in verse 6 that Zacchaeus received Jesus joyfully, it means he received Jesus into his home. And the crowd mocked. Probably all the way there. They're walking to Zacchaeus' house, probably there on the periphery, just at least murmuring under their breath, perhaps openly mocking. The crowd hurled insults and complaints and Zacchaeus heard it all. He'd heard it all before. He hears them murmuring this time. In the past, maybe he got discouraged, maybe he got angry, but this time he hears something else. He hears the gospel. They're at Zacchaeus' house now. A meal is being prepared, and right, they didn't have microwaves. He didn't just uh, pull it out of the freezer and, and nuke that thing. So this is going to be a longer time of, of fellowship together while the meal's being prepared. Jesus almost certainly spoke to Zacchaeus about eternal life, just as he had done with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, Simon at the Pharisee's house, and several others. Jesus likely lays it out, who he is, why he's come, and how Zacchaeus can respond. Then at some point, either during or after the meal, Zacchaeus stood up to make a public announcement. He's got something he wants everyone to hear. It appears he's blown away by Jesus' message. He's blown away that Jesus would come and eat a meal with him. He has deep seated guilt and shame, but, but Jesus cut through all the fog. He cut through all the sin, because that's what Jesus does. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Zacchaeus needed rest. Zacchaeus needed hope, and Jesus brought it. So Zacchaeus responds to the gospel and demonstrates his love for Jesus right away, instantly, immediately. Zacchaeus responded to the gospel by making a public confession of his wrongs, repenting of his sin and making restitution. He demonstrated a brand new relationship, one that was motivated by love and forgiveness. Zacchaeus was born again, a new creation. He saw Jesus, he saw the true Jesus, not just the miracle worker walking through town. He saw the Savior, and he was transformed. Notice that his confession included, like I said, repentance and restitution. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. It's an all-encompassing. And it has ongoing implications for every life. It's not a, one day, a one-time act. It's a continual, everyday act of turning away from sin. It's what restores our relationship to God and produces in us a new relationship. Zacchaeus trusted Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life and then demonstrated his changed life with a new way of living. He bore the fruit of repentance. He did deeds appropriate for repentance. Namely, restitution. Restitution is compensating the loss or damage. It's paying back what is due. It's the fruit of repentance. It's the cheerful duty of a heart that's been affected by the gospel. And here in this case, he responds to Jesus' costly grace by giving away. Before he took, now he gives away. Zacchaeus gave away and committed to continually give away half of his possessions. This was a lot of money, but he didn't give it out of obligation. He gave it out of faith. He gave it out of joy. He was a cheerful giver who proposed in his heart to give with abundance. He only gave half of his possessions, unlike the rich young ruler, right? Jesus called the rich young ruler to give it all because he needed to make restitution. Jesus hadn't called him to do this. This was just Zacchaeus's response, and he wants to do it. He says, if I have defrauded anyone, that if is not an if like, maybe I have, maybe I haven't. It's a since I have defrauded many, he basically gives a public confession of fraud. Because I'm a fraud, uh, because I've committed high crimes, this is what I will do. He committed to pay back 400% to everyone he owed. That's a a pretty big sum of money. The law required him to pay back only one-fifth beyond what he owed, and in some cases, double. But he's committed, according to the Jewish law, he's committed to make restitution at the highest level. He views his crimes so heinous that he will go to the highest level. But the point, however, is not that Zacchaeus gave away his money, but that he was willing to part with, with what was previously most precious to him. Seeing his Savior opened his eyes to see what is important to God. Loving people is more important than loving possessions. Caring for the weak, the needy, and the poor is an example of our Savior. Jesus says, Jesus' acceptance of Zacchaeus made money insignificant or at least non-essential. This might be a good point for us to to camp just for a minute. After all, it's a week after Christmas. The time when we exchange gifts, the time when, um, at least in our culture, materialism is just elevated so high. And it's good to ask every once in a while, is there something in your life that you're unwilling to part with for the sake of the gospel? How do you know? How do you know if there is something? Well, what do you fear? What do you fear losing? What do you love most? What do you depend on? What are you passionate about? What do you think the most about? What do you look forward to doing the most? What is most valuable to you? Could you give it away to follow Jesus. You may not be a, that may not be a question you have to answer. It may not be required of you, but it should still be something that you ask. Could I, would I? Is it is it too precious to me? The example of Zacchaeus demonstrates the kind of generosity that characterizes someone transformed by the gospel. When we know our shame, our need, And when that's met with the gospel, then giving away 400% of our wealth, our house, whatever. I mean, that's, that's just trinkets. It's all lost compared to the value of knowing Christ. Well, after giving half his possessions to the poor and restoring those he defrauded, Zacchaeus was no longer a wealthy man, but he was richer than he'd ever been before. He gained every spiritual blessing and all the heavenly riches, He considered it worth losing his wealth to gain eternal life and eternal joy. Well, there's one more thing to point out here before we finish up. Jesus gives the final word. We see that salvation comes from Jesus in verses 9 and 10. We've talked a lot about Zacchaeus, but really the story is about Jesus. And we see that in verses 9 and 10. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. These verses summarize the story and the purpose of Jesus' coming. In response to Zacchaeus, Jesus confirmed with his words what Zacchaeus had already confirmed with his actions, namely, that this was the day of salvation for Zacchaeus. Now Jesus spoke to Zacchaeus, the day of salvation has come, but he's really talking to the crowd. He was giving them the message that he is the savior of sinners. You consider Zacchaeus the chief sinner, the worst of all of you? This is who I came to save, is his message. And if you too recognize the depth of your depravity, then the gospel is for you. Speaking of the crowd of Jews, Jesus elevated Zacchaeus, as is to say, Here is a true son of Abraham, not just a physical descendant. Sons of Abraham believe the gospel. They don't just keep human traditions. Galatians 3.7 says, "'Know then that that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham.'" And Zacchaeus was now both, a descendant of Abraham and a son of faith in the line of Abraham." Verse 10 then gives the full explanation. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to seek and save notorious sinners. That's the reason he came. John MacArthur calls verse 10 the most glorious and most important truth ever revealed in Scripture. Where would we be if Jesus did not seek and save the lost? What a glorious truth it is. Jesus came to the Earth searching for lost sinners, searching for those who would otherwise be guaranteed an eternity of destruction. He came to seek them. He came to seek you, and He came to seek me. He reaches out with the saving power of the gospel. Notice, he initiates. He seeks. and then in response to his seeking, we respond. Salvation is from Jesus. It's a gift that he gives. Zacchaeus saw Jesus, right? He climbed a tree, hosted the Savior, and was saved. But make no mistake, the story really is about Jesus. It begins with Jesus entering Jericho. Why was he in Jericho? Because God had sovereignly rerouted him away from Samaria just for this one moment here. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, not to associate with the rich and powerful, not to f- fulfill legalistic religious demands and, or to reform the Jewish religion, not to rescue the oppressed who were under Roman rule or to establish a political kingdom, not to give you a prosperous, healthy, um, self-improved sort of life. He came to seek and save the lost. To do so, he associated with sinners and tax collectors People like you and me. We 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 may not be known as the town scandal. We may not have the identity as a sinner. But apart from grace, we're the lost. Such a wonderful and profound truth deserves our daily meditation on it. The more you're convinced that you're deeply sinful and lost apart from Christ, the more precious the gospel will be to you. Every day provides evidence of your sinfulness and more amazement of His grace. And then as you remember your daily need for the gospel, we daily rejoice that Jesus came to seek us, to embrace us with His mercy, with His compassion, with His life-changing gospel. Listen, if you hear nothing else than this right here, I am persuaded and have been persuaded more and more over the years that if, if we keep a desperate view of our need in mind, if, if we're continually reminded of our desperation and our, our really utter helplessness and neediness, and then we over, over top of that we lay the grace of God that satisfies more deeply than our sin could ever reach, everything else makes sense. Everything else falls into place. But it's so easy to live self-sufficiently, at least functionally, to lose sight of our need. And then grace is not really grace, is it? It's, it's just that thing I add into my life. It's not really needed, right? You take out the grace in my life, and I still got many of the things that I want, so it can appear at times. But when you feel that need, when you wake up in the morning and realize, I can't do today period, without grace. No grace, my day goes, just doesn't go at all. I'm sustained. No grace, no breath in my lungs. No grace, no hope. You live in that reality and everything else begins to make sense. Keeping the gospel central in our thoughts also prepares us to live our life on mission. After Jesus left Jericho, he continued to Jerusalem where he would die on a cross, be raised from the dead, and then ascend to heaven And what did he do before he ascended to heaven? He gave us the mission, right? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He's still seeking and saving the lost, but now he's doing it through you and me. He's saying, Ben, Gavin, Josh, all of us, go and seek and save. You're now my ambassadors. My mission is still the same, but I've made you my representatives to fulfill the great commission. You are the messengers to speak to to the Zacchaeuses in your life. The broken, the outcast, the ashamed, the guilty, the, the downcast, the least, the weak, the tired, the weary, those who those are those, anyone who knows they need a Savior. And you're in their life to tell them. Maybe they're hiding. Maybe they're climbing up in their sycamore tree because they don't want to be seen. But God calls you to be in their life, perhaps even to call them out by name graciously. And say, God knows you and he's come for you. And there's a message I think you got to hear. Who are the outcasts in your life? Who are the people that need to hear the gospel? Don't overlook them. Don't avoid them. Initiate and go to them. Be Christ to them. Bring Christ to them. Bring them to Christ. As a church, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ who seek and save the lost. We're not called to seek the found. That's not our mission. We're called to seek those who need to hear the message. Believe in the power of the gospel and believe that God is merciful to sinners, like you and like me, and like everyone around us. Well, in response to this passage, I encourage you maybe, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, maybe you're off from work, you got a little extra time. Rewrite this story, Luke 19 1 to 10, with your own details. In what circumstances did the gospel invade your life? How did Jesus enter your life so that you would seek him? And then now is your life characterized by surrendering to him? Could you say, as Zacchaeus said, you know, every day I'm I'm turning away from my sin. I'm making restitution. If there are wrongs, I make them right. I want to honor my Lord and my Savior. We know that salvation is from Jesus, but do we seek him Every day. The Savior's mission was and is to rescue hopeless sinners like you and me. Let's receive Him with joy as Zacchaeus received Him with joy. And let's pursue Him without shame. And then let's proclaim Him to all around us that He seeks and saves the lost. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for Your amazing grace and even in such a familiar story we asked that that it would hit home in our heart in such a way that we we remember afresh or perhaps in, in more in, in a more significant deeper way that we were just like Zacchaeus so needy and our need hasn't changed Jesus we need you every day apart from your grace Oh, man, we're hopeless. We're surrounded by so much worldly wealth and and so much... uh, Our our circumstances for most of us are very good. Lord, let that not cloud our pursuit of You. Let those things not get in the way of our hunger for You. May we receive them as gifts that You've given to be enjoyed, but may we pursue the giver of the gifts so relentlessly, so faithfully. And Father, I pray for each of us here in this room uh, that it would be our daily practice to think deeply about the realities of the gospel, the implications that are ours in Christ. We'd press deeply into our sinfulness. We realize in it we're, we're full of shame, we're full of guilt, but the grace runs so much deeper. It's so much greater. It's so much bigger. And we would cherish it and love it. And especially love the one who gives it. So Father, I pray also that you'd make us ambassadors for you. This message would be so written upon our hearts that we can't not tell it. We all know people who are lost. We all know people who are riddled with guilt and shame. Perhaps they cover it up. Perhaps they hide it well. But they're needy. They're desperate. And we have the message that changes everything. Would we be faithful to your call for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.